for many pro-lifers, they feel a little bit like they're shooting in the dark. They've got all these different pro-life arguments. They don't really know when to use them. Fear not, there is a roadmap for how to have good conversations about abortion. Stay tuned. Hi folks, my name is Cam. I am the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations so together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back. Um, today's episode, we are diving into a new um, kind of theme, I suppose. This is going to be a back-to-basics theme. Um, a lot of people, I feel like I get two very different kinds of questions on social media, to our email, that kind of thing. Um, Sometimes they are very, very complex, very convoluted, and really good to really unpack. We get a lot of questions about particular bodily autonomy arguments, a lot of questions about particular guests and that kind of thing. But sometimes we get questions about, um, walk me through this particular circumstance, or what do you say specifically for this one? And while I always love giving responses, and, and I'll try to do more and more of those, I think that it makes sense to do a series where we demonstrate that especially if you're relatively new to having conversations about abortion, that there is, believe it or not, a roadmap for how to have conversations that you don't actually have to memorize a tremendous number of anecdotes, but rather have to be able to follow along a general principled roadmap for how you want your conversations to unfold. What do I mean by that? Well, by way of analogy, um, and, and I shared this story while doing a, a talk in Vernon um, in the middle of um, August as part of our um, Faces of, <clears throat> excuse me, faces of abortion tour. Um, I, I know that many of us obviously now rely on Google Maps. Uh, when you're trying to get to a new place, you're probably going to plug it into your phone, and and Google Maps is going to tell you exactly how to get there. And I know that I might age myself a little bit here. I promise you, I'm still in my early 30s. Um, but believe it or not, it wasn't too long ago that we didn't actually have Google Maps. I remember actually doing our, during my internship in 2012, which I know is 11 years ago now, which is wild. Um, during my internship, Google Maps didn't exist. Uh, at least it wasn't anywhere near as prevalent as it is now. And so we had these little baby um, GPS units. We had like the Garmin and the TomTom. And I, I believe there's a few other like mainline um, brands that would do these little independent GPS finders, which we're kind of the first step in that direction. What do we do before that? How did you find your way from point A to point B before we even had those little Garmin GPS units? Literally, you used a paper map. And I spent a ton of time growing up um, playing baseball tournaments. And we're not going to get into my baseball career at this point. Um, but my dad would take me to different cities to play baseball tournaments fairly frequently during my childhood, into my teenage years, all that kind of thing. I still play baseball now. I don't travel quite as much for ball, but still do a little bit of traveling. But at this point, I'm not using a map anymore. And I remember my dad talking to me about the importance of principles when it comes to using a map. That for anybody who's tried to use a map while sitting in the passenger seat, the writing on maps is really small. And it can be really difficult to know exactly the right roads that you need to get on, particularly if you run into problems, if you run into construction, if you run into lane closures, if you run into other problems like that, you don't realize that a road is a one-way road or something like that. And so how do you navigate that? Well, the principle from that goes just as well towards talking to people about abortion, believe it or not. The principle that my dad always taught me was give me general ideas. Where are we now? And generally speaking, how do we, where are we going in the future? 
we are trying to get to a destination that is 45 blocks west and 25 blocks north of where we are now. And so he would teach me, okay, I don't need a specific road. I need to know at some point I need to turn left or right, north or south. And from there, I need to turn east or west, left or right from there. Find me a major road that's going north and then find me a major road that's going west. We'll get in the ballpark. And once we get close to where we're going, then we can pull over and find the exact street address that we're looking for, the exact intersection, something like that. Get me in the neighborhood. Get me close using the principles of major street going west, major street going north, things like that. How does that relate to conversations about abortion? Well, it feels like any number of different circumstances get thrown at us. We often obviously start the conversation by asking an open-ended question along the lines of what do you think about abortion? Um, notice the emphasis on you. I want I want them thinking about themselves and where they're at on the abortion issue. I, I don't want to be too heavy with my emphasis on what do you think about abortion or what do you think about abortion? I want it to be, what do you think about abortion? Um, and often we get a wide range of, of responses, but the most common genre of response is circumstantial justification. Justifications which lean either towards concrete circumstances which can surround a mother's pregnancy or a justification along the lines of bodily autonomy, something like that. A justification for abortion, whether a practical justification or a principled justification of abortion. And what we need to know is that we need to drive west. We need a general principle. And that general principle is that regardless of what the justification is, whether it's something very specific or very general, whether it's very concrete or very principled, we are going to meet them where they're at. If For those of you who might be familiar with the book Stuck, A Guide to Answering Tough Questions About Abortion, written by my colleague and friend Justina Van Manen, you'll remember this as being bridging the gap, meeting them where they're at, because we need to take them along for the ride. Yes, um, the circumstances surrounding pregnancy are not um, paramount to the abortion conversation in a lot of ways, in principle. However, if we're going to have productive conversations, we can't just be talking to ourselves. We need to be talking with somebody. And if we're going to be talking with somebody, they need to feel heard. They need to be acknowledged. They need to be um, respected and understood. And so we're going to start by meeting them where they're at with three tools. First, common ground. We don't want to get into fights with people. We don't want something to be viewed as a me versus you, which unfortunately is how a lot of people view interactions about abortion. They see it as a debate with a winner and a loser. And while certainly we want to win arguments, we don't only want to win arguments. We want to win people while we're winning arguments about abortion. We want to draw people to the pro-life worldview. And if we're going to do that, we need to meet them where we're at. We need to empathize with them with regards to the, the importance and relevance of the justification they're bringing up. You might have a hard time um, thinking through that, particularly for some of the more, um, I don't want to say ridiculous, but some of the some of the ones that you're going to hear. I'm not, I'm not going to demean them one way or another. Everything is said for a reason. And so regardless of whether you value that reason or not, um, things are said for reasons. And so whatever the justification is, I want to empathize with the reality of that situation by saying, I agree with you that something in what they said. And so if it's something along the lines of they say abortion should be allowed when the mother is living in poverty, if she can't provide food for herself or her born children, why should she be forced to provide for another child who hasn't been born yet? 
I agree with you that living in poverty is very real and incredibly challenging for a tremendous number of people. I agree with you that there is a problem that exists that demands our attention, demands some form of a solution. And again, this goes for the the whole range, whether it's something like poverty, whether it's arguably the most common. I'm going to dedicate a whole episode to a number of these to show how this roadmap works. But whether it's something like sexual assault, I agree with you that sexual assault is one of the most heinous crimes in our entire society. We need to do more to prevent it from happening, to punish the guilty perpetrators, and to support the innocent victims, regardless of whether they become pregnant or not. Whether it's even something as far in the left field as overpopulation. Don't debate whether or not it exists. Say, I agree with you that often it feels like there isn't enough resources, support, um, whatever it may be, to go around. We don't want to refute and we don't want to resolve. Refuting is basically saying that this argument is not an important argument. It's not valuable. It's not coherent. It's not meaningful. It's a bad argument. And that might be the case. But for the person who's saying it, they'd probably believe that it's a good argument. And so if we dismiss them out of hand, we're not going to be productive in any way. And so don't bother getting into refuting poverty by saying if people in developing nations can have children, then people in a developed nation like Canada should be able to have children. Don't bother getting into the completely erroneous statistic from the Guttmacher Institute that suggests that less than 1% of pregnancies are a result of sexual assault. Don't get into whether or not overpopulation is a thing or not. Don't bother. We don't want to spend time debating whether or not suffering exists. We don't want to spend time debating whether or not hard situations exist. We want to get as quickly as possible towards talking about um, whether or not preborn children are, are human and whether all humans should get human rights. And so we're not going to refute. We're also not going to resolve. We're not going to try to solve the problems and just answer all of the, the um, concerns that they might have before we've taken abortion off the table. And so refuting we're not going to do because it can come across as really callous and it shouldn't be done ever, I would argue. Re- resolving situations is something that we shouldn't do yet. Obviously, pro-lifers need to be a part of the solution. Obviously, we need to empower people and be a part of the solution ourselves towards resolving the hard situations that mothers and fathers are faced with. However, it is impossible to make um, pregnancy easier than how easy abortion is perceived to be. If somebody still has abortion as an appropriate or, or um, um, accessible option in their mind, then we are going to spend our tires constantly trying to make pregnancy easier and easier and easier. And it's not even going to be worth value because it's impossible to make um, pregnancy easier than how easy abortion is perceived to be. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that in today's day and age, the majority of people that I speak with believe that abortion is something that they can schedule on a Friday afternoon and they're back to work or back to school on Monday morning. They don't miss anything, and nobody even needs to know. Their boyfriend doesn't need to know. Their husband doesn't need to know. Their school, their work, their family, their church community, nobody needs to know. This is the great reset button. And so if in people's minds, it is the difference between being pregnant and not being pregnant, it's impossible to to make being pregnant easier than not being pregnant. However, if we can um, correct that dichotomy into you are either pregnant with a living child, you're either the parent of a living child or the parent of a dead child, if we can make abortion more difficult for people to accept by demonstrating the fact that this is a living member of the human family, that all living members of the human family deserve human rights, then 
we are actually going to remove abortion from the table. And only once we remove abortion from the table, can we start resolving some of the situations and scenarios that they find themselves in. We, again, we can't do that, though, before we've removed abortion as a viable option from their mind because it's simply futile, because we can never make pregnancy easier than how easy abortion is perceived to be. And so if we're not going to refute, if we're not going to resolve, we got to go back to the roadmap. We're going to find common ground. We're going to empathize with the reality of suffering, the reality of the justification that they have brought forward, whether it's concrete or principled. And then we're going to make an analogy. We're going to trot out the toddler to demonstrate the principle that we don't solve problems by killing innocent humans. And so we trot out the toddler. We want to do this over and over and over again. I get that the more advanced, the more... um, the more experienced you've got, maybe you nuance some of these analogies, but I would highly, highly recommend not only for your sake, but also for the sake of the person that you're talking to, to be as consistent as possible with the analogies that you're making. These analogies trotting on the toddler are going to demonstrate with consistent clarity, again, like I mentioned, that um, you cannot kill innocent humans to solve even the hardest of problems. And so if they bring up, again, something like poverty, we're going to be able to say, imagine there's a mother with a two-year-old child whose financial situation deteriorates to the point where she can no longer provide food, um, rent, anything else, quality of life for herself and her child. Would we ever suggest that she kills her born child to cope with her strained financial situation? We're going to do this with sexual assault. Imagine there's a mother living, I mean, a healthy relationship with a born child, but then that relationship deteriorates to the point of violence and abuse. After we remove her and her child from that abusive relationship, she's no longer reminded when she looks at that child of a loving, healthy relationship. She's now reminded of an abusive, violent home. And every day that the child grows reminds her more and more poignantly of that abuse. Would we ever suggest she kills her born child to cope with the reminder of that abusive relationship? or overpopulation. Imagine there are so many people on earth that there weren't enough resources to go around for all of the, the born humans. Would we ever suggest we kill innocent born children because of the excessive demands on our resources? If not for a born child, why for a preborn child? We ask all of these analogies, all of these analogies which trot out the toddler to demonstrate that principle to show um, that We're not going to solve this problem by killing an innocent born child. The last thing that we're going to do, which is going to pivot us towards the conversation, step two of our roadmap, uh, we're going to see if Maddie can throw up a a sweet visual, um, particularly for those who might be able to follow along on YouTube to show this roadmap along and along. Um, The last part of um, Bridging the Gap is going to be the pivot question, which is simply to ask if we wouldn't kill a born child to solve this problem, why will we kill that same child? just a few years earlier to solve the same problem. What is the difference? We're basically asking, what is the difference between born children and pre-born children? Why is it okay to kill a pre-born child, but not a born child? That question pivots us from talking about the reality of of, um, hard circumstances and scenarios, which um, can involve a tremendous amount of suffering and hardship, to talking about whether or not these are actually human beings. Because if we acknowledge that they are a human being, then no justification for abortion is adequate, right? It's never an appropriate solution to kill an innocent human to solve even the hardest of problems. And so that pivot question draws us in that route. Again, 
that first step of the roadmap, the travel west, build common ground, make an analogy, ask a question. Step two, what do we do after that? Well, after that, we're probably, as we ask the question, what, um, why is it okay to kill an innocent preborn child, but not an innocent born child to solve that problem? We're probably going to get some kind of a response along the lines of, but they're not human, but it's just a fetus. Um, it's not the same, something like that. And that is actually the direction we want to go. We want to be talking about whether or not preborn children are actually indeed humans. And so, um, because as I mentioned, this entire conversation at the end of the day, I would argue comes down to whether or not they are indeed living members of the human family, because if they're not, if a preborn human being, a, a human embryo, human fetus, human zygote is not a living member of the human family, then no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if they are, then no justification for abortion is adequate. It all comes down to whether or not they're living members of the human family. And so how do we demonstrate that? I want to propose four questions that are worth committing, this time verbatim. I know that for common ground analogy in question, they are principles, empathizing with the hardship, demonstrating by way of trotting out the toddler that we don't kill humans to solve problems, and asking a pivot question that challenges the difference between born and preborn children. Those are all kind of principles that you can use your own wording for, I suppose. However, for the humanity, I want to um, suggest memorizing these questions verbatim because they are so effective in streamlining the conversation about the humanity of preborn children. So the first question I want to encourage you to ask is, do you believe all humans get human rights? Do you believe all humans get human rights? The vast majority of people that you talk to are going to say yes. Perfect. If they say no, you might have to clarify what you mean. The fundamental human right to not be killed intentionally as an innocent human. That's a very wordy way of clarifying it. Can you agree? Um, do we agree all humans get human rights? Question two, if something is growing, isn't it alive? Again, the vast majority of people that you're going to talk to are going to acknowledge that yes, if something is growing, it must be alive. Dead things don't grow. Inanimate things don't grow. Okay, question three. If a living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? And so question two has demonstrated that we have a living organism from the moment of fertilization because we can, we can observe growth from one cell to two cells to four cells. We have a living something from the moment of fertilization by asking who the parents of that living something is, we can determine what that living something itself is. And so that living something from the moment of fertilization has human parents, he or she must be a living human. And that the fourth and final question kind of draws it all together. It's a, a syllogism in question format. Wouldn't that make abortion a human rights violation? Abortion is something that directly and intentionally ends the life of that innocent living member of the human family. If we agree that all living members of the human family get human rights, wouldn't that make abortion a human rights violation? So again, those four questions. One, do you agree all humans get human rights? Two, if something is growing, isn't alive? Three, if a living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? And finally, doesn't that make abortion a human rights violation? Those four questions are absolute bangers. Um, as we go through um, this series of Back to Basics, I will go through testimonies of people that I've been blessed to witness change their mind simply because of these four questions and how that unfolded. Those four questions, by and large, are going to help people not only understand and appreciate 
the presence of human life, but also remind them, especially with that first and fourth question, the value of human life and how all humans get human rights. What do you do if people debate the humanity? You ask these four questions and they say, no, that's too good to be true. You pro-lifers are tricking me. You have found the perfect wordings and you make it sound like they're humans, but they're not actually humans. How do you demonstrate that abortion kills an innocent human being? Well, the first thing I want to suggest, something integral to the strategy of CSPR, is to show them that abortion directly and intentionally kills an innocent human being. Whether that's by way of showing them a visual um, of a child killed by abortion, whether that's showing a video um, of a child being killed by abortion, whether that's one of the um, high-quality animated videos that Live Action have done with Dr. Anthony Leventino um, showing the process of abortion, I would argue that the best way to prove that abortion kills an innocent human being is to show how abortion kills an innocent human being. If for some reason you don't have the opportunity or ability to do that, the other thing that I would suggest, again, for our, our people on, on YouTube, you can see this, but for those just listening in, pull on your phone and Google, when does human life begin? Um, I've, I do this every couple months just to make sure that um, Google hasn't tried to modify the algorithm or anything. You're going to get over 2 billion results in less than half a second. And the overwhelming majority of those, particularly all of those found on the first page, most particularly that which is prominently featured as the first search engine result, will all affirm that human life begins at fertilization. You don't have to take my word on it. You don't have to take the word of pro-lifers that human life begins at fertilization. This isn't some dusty church doctrine, but rather something that literally every credible biologist, embryologist, scientist is going to acknowledge. Human life begins at fertilization. The last, if necessary, step of the roadmap that unfortunately a lot of people, myself at times included, want to jump to immediately is talking about the value of human life. They want to talk about the personhood of preborn children and how valuable they are. However, if we jump the gun, if we talk about this too early before we've demonstrated the presence of human life, then again, we're going to be spinning our tires. And so we need to first meet them where they're at. Second step of the roadmap, demonstrate the presence of a human life. Third, if necessary, if questions one and four of the human rights argument are insufficient in reminding them that all humans should get human rights, we need to go into what we call the human plus X argument. What that is, is if somebody suggests that humans are valuable because of an attribute, because of sentience, because of independence, because of um, what they look like, what they don't look like, because of um, a heartbeat or brain waves or capacity to feel pain, all those kinds of stuff, don't debate whether or not they exist. Simply ask why they are not present. Why is a one cell human zygote not sentient? Why is a six-week embryo not fully um, independent? Why, 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 why? Why does that difference exist? And every one of those differences can be traced back to how old that child is. Either you're dealing with a, a matter of disability, and so it's um, ability-based discrimination, or in the vast majority of cases, it traces back to how old they are. The reason why they can't survive on their own is because of how old they are. The reason why they don't have a fully formed heart or brain or any other aspect of their bodies because of how old they are. The reason why so many of the differences exist is because of how old they are. Ask why the difference that they have focused on exists and then clarify that that is age-based discrimination. They're saying that you have to be human plus a particular age to be counted as valuable. And then ask them to explain to you why age-based discrimination is any better 
than any other form of arbitrary discrimination. Whether it's our age, whether it's our skin color, whether it's our ethnicity, religion, gender, anything else, why is age-based discrimination any better or any more appropriate than any other form of discrimination? Tragically, it'll be very obvious very early on that age-based discrimination simply provides a victim who can't fight back, right? Um, and why can't they fight back? Because of their age, right? That, that racial violence is not wrong because the people can fight back. The fact that people can fight back often accelerates the, um, the resolution, the fact that um, ethnicity-based or religion-based or gender-based discrimination is, um, is fought against by the victims is, again, a symptom of their age. And so, tragically, abortion has found the perfect victim, a victim who cannot defend themselves simply because of their age. And so, how is discriminating human rights based on somebody's age any better than any other form of discrimination? To paraphrase an argument from our good friends over at the Equal Rights Institute, if we believe that all humans get equal human rights in that it's just as wrong to kill an innocent human who is um, a toddler as it is to kill an innocent human who's an adult, that our, our abilities are whatever does not increase or decrease whether or not it's right or wrong to kill us? Do we have equal human rights? What is the only thing that we share equally? If we all have this right to life equally, what is the only thing that we share equally? It's our membership in the human family. We are all at different stages of development, different abilities, different appearances, different skill sets, all that kind of thing. The only thing that we share equally is our membership in the human family. And therefore, if we have a right that is shared equally, it ought to be shared on a factor that is shared equally amongst people. And so the equal right to life must be based on the equal membership in the human family. There's an awful lot there. I'll go through it um, one last time here. Please do write in or message in or whatever um, to let me know if you have any questions about this general roadmap. Again, we're going to be doing episodes every other week or, or fairly regularly. I haven't entirely um, established how frequent they're going to be, but fairly regularly they come back to this episode on the roadmap. So again, we have three major sections, two essential sections being um, Addressing justifications, one, and speaking about the humanity, two, to get towards that end goal of embracing the pro-life worldview. If necessary, there might be a third step being talking about the personhood or the value of human beings. And so the first step um, is addressing the justification, which is building common ground, empathizing with the reality of the circumstance or justification they have brought forward, then uh, making an analogy to demonstrate the principle that we don't address those justifications by killing innocent born humans. And finally, asking a pivot question, if we're not going to address them by killing innocent born humans, then why innocent preborn humans? Those are the three steps of addressing justifications. That gets us into the humanity of the preborn. That's where our four verbatim memorized human rights questions are going to come in. Do you agree? All humans get human rights. If something is growing, isn't alive, if a living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human, doesn't that make abortion a human rights violation? If necessary, showing the reality of what abortion does to a preborn child to demonstrate that abortion kills an innocent human. Um, and again, if necessary, um, searching on your phone, when does human life begin and appealing to an authority figure that they will recognize and demonstrate that the overwhelming majority of anybody within that field is going to recognize human life begins at fertilization. If necessary, dropping down to that final point of personhood, going 
through um, asking the questions why the differences exist between born and preborn children whether they're focused on sentience or independence or anything else, why does that difference exist? Helping them see that it's a difference traced back to our age. And if it's a difference of age, then um, how is age-based discrimination any better or any more appropriate than any other arbitrary form of discrimination? Just as on, on any um, trip, you might find roadblocks, you might find construction, you might bounce back and forth between different things. And if you do, you go back to the map principle. If you're talking through the humanity of preborn children and another circumstance comes up, then you might have to go back to addressing justifications. It's not a one and done situation. If you're traveling west and you run into, into a roadblock, you might have to detour and then go back to traveling west. If you think that you're traveling north um, and you run into a roadblock, you need to go back to the previous step. And so if somebody brings up a justification, go back. The value of this roadmap is to know where you're at and where you need to go next. And so regardless of how many times you get bounced back to justifications, particularly if you are using a consistent um, trotting out the toddler, it's going to demonstrate that all of these justifications lead towards the question of humanity. That at the end of the day, every conversation about abortion has to be determined based on whether or not abortion kills an innocent human. Because there's no situation in which we ever deem it appropriate to kill an innocent human to solve even the gravest of problems. And so we want them to acknowledge the circular nature, not of our argument, but of their argument, right? Because they are not, the, the burden of proof is not on us. They are not challenging our worldview, but rather we are challenging their worldview that abortion can solve a challenging pregnancy. And so their argument is circular, and they are the ones drawing us in this consistent pattern back to the question of if it's not okay to kill an innocent born child, why an innocent preborn child? You're going to bounce back and forth at times. We have witnessed this roadmap change countless minds. We've been tracking over 5,000 conversations in the last two years in Western Canada alone. Um, over 5,000 conversations with people who support abortion in one way or another. And what we find is that when we use this roadmap coupled together with abortion victim photography, over 27% of abortion-minded people that we talk to become fully pro-life within the span of a single conversation. These are people that we are evaluating um, their position um, as they come into the conversation. We're confirming their position as they leave the conversation. 27% of people becoming fully pro-life by the end of a conversation with an additional 25% more becoming significantly more pro-life. What does that mean? That means maybe they walked in supporting abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. And while they didn't fully come to accept the pro-life worldview, they left the conversation saying, no, I no longer believe that. I believe it's only okay in the first three months. Not a, not a total victory, but a very significant shift in their worldview. Maybe they come in saying that it should be allowed in any situation that a mother is faced with, and they leave saying, I, I still can't um, wrap my head around sexual assault in the life of the mother, but I agree with you that all of these other scenarios are no longer appropriate. Significant shift. So over 50% of the people are willing to verbally acknowledge that they have shifted at least somewhat in their worldview towards the pro-life position. 27% of them, more than one, one in four people, becoming fully pro-life by the end of a conversation. And many of that remaining 40-something percent really thinking more critically. I, I think that it's often daunting to think about that 40-some-odd um, percent and how are people not shifted at all? Well, for a lot of them, they, they are coming into a conversation thinking abortion is only okay in particular circumstances. And 
having a pebble put in their shoe. They're, they're recognizing that there is merit to the pro-life worldview, but they're not quite ready to accept the pro-life worldview yet for a variety of reasons, because there's a lot of dominoes that fall as soon as you reject abortion, right? There's a lot of people who will acknowledge that if they come to reject abortion, then, then these principles have concrete practices that are tied to them and that they might not be able to engage in the relationships that they are in the way that they are if they no longer have abortion as a quote-unquote backup plan. It is difficult to change your mind on abortion because of all of the life factors that are implicated by that worldview. And so um, while we want to push and challenge people to uh, reject this worldview as um, urgently as we possibly can, I don't think that we need to accept final defeat if they haven't fully embraced the pro-life worldview before they walk away from the conversation you're having. Um, our good Lord is the one who changes hearts and minds. We plant seeds and sometimes we're not there to witness um, them coming to fruition. However, we've been blessed to witness a ton of people come back to our displays days, weeks, even years later and say, hey, you know what I talked to? And at the time, I, I wasn't ready to become fully pro-life. But having thought about this um, since then, I've realized that abortion is not an appropriate solution to these situations, that kind of thing. And so this roadmap is something that I'm going to talk a lot about through this fall and in, in upcoming episodes. And so please stay tuned. Thank you for tuning in. As you can see, I'm back rocking my Life Guys merch and super exciting announcement that we have other CCBR related merch that I'm going to show off right now because I think that they're awesome. You'll see me wearing them coming up here. We have crew neck sweaters, I believe, in both black and tan. Make abortion unthinkable and the killing.ca. We have more crew neck sweaters with a different sort of thing on it. Um, former fetus and the killing.ca, which I think is really cool. We also have some t shirts with those same. Um, sort of slogans and whatnot on them. And so I'll drop a link to the website that you can purchase all of these t-shirts at. They are incredibly comfortable. Just holding them right now. They're the same material, I believe, um, as what the Pro-Life Guy shirts are um, made out of. And so they're incredibly soft. Um, I'd highly recommend them, not only for wearing out and about and being part of your pro-life um, engagement of your culture, but also even if you're just looking for a super cozy shirt that you can wear on a, a cold day in November, wherever you're at, um, highly recommend that. And so thanks to for tuning in. Look forward to doing more of these back to basic episodes in the coming weeks and months. And so thank you very much. Please don't hesitate to reach out. May God bless you abundantly wherever you're at, however many hours are left in your day. Mm -hmm.